Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview on 91.5 FM KSUA, and thanks for listening. What is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, everybody out there, thank you once again for listening and joining us on KSUA 91.5 FM in College, Alaska, here at UAF, our campus in Fairbanks. With us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Christia, uh, Tim, say your name, it's... Uh, Kristen, Kristen, Tim. Kristen, Tim. And uh, she has a PhD from George Mason University in Fairfax, uh, Virginia. And we are going to get into the communication aspect of uh, climate change and global warming. So um, Dr. Tim, thank you for being with us. And uh, let's, let's jump right in. Um, your uh, academic background is in communication and you've been studying um, climate change, and then I've noticed there's a lot of peer-reviewed articles that you've published on, uh, let's just call them weather people, and whether the weather people, the weather men, the weather women um, have been uh, allowed to even discuss climate change on their broadcasts. So can you speak to that a little bit, Doctor? Yeah, so to kind of um, take a moment and zoom out a little bit, um, I, I'd like to just kind of situate this work within this broader interest of mine, which is basically, you know, what are the people and processes that are working at the interface of science and society. So who are those people? What are they saying? What are they doing? How are, how are they working together? Um, and so that's kind of the big question that frames my research is, you know, what is happening at the interface of science and society? And so I've worked as a, a science communicator for many years for federal agencies, for academic organizations, um, but I've always kind of been curious about the why, you know, why does some particular communication work? Why is this messenger more effective than another messenger? And so when I decided to go back to school for my PhD, um, I had the great opportunity to work with um, my advisor on this project called Climate Matters. 
um, which is a project focused on um, TV weathercasters around the United States and their communication to their audiences about climate change. So uh, just looking at your numbers, uh, for the broadcast meteorology uh, full-time reporters, uh, one of the studies, there's 466 of them, and then another study, there was 629, and then a third study, 480. So that is actually how many weather people there are in America? So that's a really good question. Um, there's actually around 2,000 TV weathercasters and broadcast meteorologists um, in the United States. And part of um, one of my first jobs when I started my PhD was basically Googling all of them to try to verify who was at what TV station, what their email address was, um, whether they were um, still in meteorology. So um, in TV meteorology and um, or in you know broadcast meteorology, uh, there's a lot of movement around between different TV stations and radio and and whatnot. So so anyways, there's around 2,000 all around the United States, and um, the research team I was working with at George Mason University, we were conducting um, annual surveys um, of that broadcast meteorology community to try to understand what they thought about climate change, how often are they reporting about it when they talk about the weather, um, a whole variety of different questions. So our surveys would often, um, we'd have, you know, anywhere from like, like you said, I think 400 to 600 or so people respond to our surveys. Um, so it was a pretty good response rate for generating, you know, an understanding of what that particular professional community was thinking and doing when it came to climate change. So what you found, let's say on the five o'clock news, uh, are these weather people allowed to talk about climate change or were they, were they hitting like uh, hurdles uh, from the editors in the newsroom? Yeah, one of um, the papers that we're still working on from that data that was collected is focused on what barriers do weathercasters experience when they try to talk about climate change in the context of their their um, their you know TV segment or through their social media channels. That's an increasingly large place where TV weathercasters are communicating about weather and climate, um, and so. I don't have the list of barriers um, in front of me right now, but the kinds of things that they would experience, um, you know, included like a fear of negative um, feedback from their stations. Um, one of the other barriers was that, you know, they don't have time to talk about it um, or to develop the stories. And, you know, weather and climate are two different things. And so even though they're experts in weather and weather forecasting, you know, having the knowledge about climate change is a, a somewhat different skill set. And so having the, um, you know, the knowledge and ability to develop stories focused on climate or that connect climate and weather, that was another barrier that we heard from some of the stations or some of the TV weathercasters at some of the stations. So it, like, for instance, this podcast series that uh, I've set up, it's about 25 shows and it's a, a general overview of climate change. And I'm kind of encountering what you probably already know is half of the communication is just explaining the science before you even get to the meat and potatoes of 
the person's opinion to begin with. And so in climate change communication, is, is that kind of uh, one of the barriers is just explaining the science. Like the science is so scary for the average person that they don't even want to talk about it. Yeah, and there's actually um, a TV weathercaster who's based in Arizona um, who was talking about how, you know, she used to talk about climate change all the time in the context of her weather forecasts. And she realized after doing that, she's like, you know, I don't really need to talk about climate change. Like, I don't have to mention that specific word. Instead, you know, I can talk about what people are experiencing in their day-to-day -day weather and I can connect what they're experiencing right now in this moment with what's happening over the long term, and they can draw the conclusions themselves. But if nobody presents that information to their audiences, you know, like here is the the long term temperature trend, for example, um, you know, that's a pretty abstract concept that not everybody has a sense of what the long term trend is, and so weathercasters. Um, the reason that they were identified as a unique audience to connect with, and this this whole project actually started with a TV weathercaster who said, hey, you know, TV weathercasters are very trusted, and a lot of the American public doesn't know a scientist, so we're the closest thing to a scientist that they're going to encounter in their day-to-day -day lives. Why don't we, you know, talk to people um, about climate change in the context of our weather forecasts. And so that's how that project initially got started. Um, and so, yeah, you see people developing a lot of different strategies, but kind of going back to the, um, the heart of the project, you know, so part of it was engaging weathercasters in communicating about climate change. Um, when we identified that barrier that they don't have time to develop those stories or maybe they don't have the expertise to develop those stories about climate we started working um, in the project with this um, uh, organization called climate central and they're a group that consists of expert communicators as well as scientists and so they would put together materials every week about climate change and they would tailor those materials to each television market around the United States. And so essentially we were trying to make it much easier, remove those barriers um, so that if weathercasters did wanna talk about climate change in the context of their forecast, we were trying to make that a lot easier for them to do. So you can check out Climate Central. They actually, all their graphics that they produce are publicly available. So, and they're beautifully designed and really well put together. So I often encourage people to go check out those graphics because it could be a good way to get, you know, localized climate information um, for any presentation you're giving. Certainly, and then just uh, expanding it uh, while we're still talking about news and media, um, past the weather report, is, did you find that there uh, is a trend towards reporting on climate change more? I mean, are we getting there? Is it, is it an accepted scientific fact instead of it being politicized, like Republican versus Democrat? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, um, oh, sorry, should I, <laughs> I got a, a tone there. Okay, so, um, 
So that's a really good question. And in addition to studying TV weathercasters in my work, I was also looking at um, what journalists um, more broadly think about climate change communication in the context of their work. And, you know, journalists are in a somewhat different um, situation. So a lot of environmental and science journalists um, with the constraints on the media industry, as our whole, you know, media system has changed in the last couple decades, um, a lot of science and environmental journalists have um, shifted to working um, as freelancers, or they, they no longer have the really stable positions within their news organizations that they once had. And so this is a challenge overall for climate change reporting, because as we know, this is a pretty complex topic. And so it helps to have a journalist with some expertise that can report accurately on the topic. But as we've seen these kind of broader structural changes in journalism, um, what's happened is, you know, it's more of those kind of generalist journalists, or it might be a political reporter that's assigned to write a story about climate change. And they're going to approach that story really differently. Um, because they might not have that expertise. There's also different professional norms. So one of the professional norms in political reporting is this, you know, two-sided kind of reporting. Um, and um, what I've found in my work is that, you know, some of that is still happening um, with the issue of climate change, even though we have a strong scientific consensus that human-caused climate change is happening and it's, um, it's going to be a problem for us um, as humans, um, we still occasionally have news stories that, um, that present this as a two-sided issue. But all of that being said, um, the overall amount of climate change reporting has been increasing. Um, there's a research group out of the University of Colorado that's looking at global trends in climate change reporting. Um, and so it's been increasing over time. Um, you know, you still get a little bit of that kind of like political style reporting. But in general, um, my research has shown that the quality of reporting um, is improving in some places. Um, so we have a lot more in-depth, high-quality reporting happening in, you know, national-level media organizations, for example, and in online um, news organizations. And we have a lot of climate-specific news organizations that are springing up to kind of fill that niche. Um, the challenge is, of course, with any media is that there's so many different kinds out there and people can pick and choose what they want to see. Certainly. So uh, let's transition a little bit before we get into glacier melt uh, in Juneau. Um, you went to George Mason University, which is in Virginia, and then you live in Alaska. Just in those two places, have you been able to see climate change happening before your very eyes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was actually pretty interesting. So I had lived in Alaska since 2003, 2004, somewhere in there. Um, and so, you know, the kinds of things that I was seeing in terms of glacier melt, um, permafrost thaw, um, fires, you know, all of those kinds of things are, you know, things that are pretty apparent in our life here in Alaska. And so I assumed that, you know, Alaska, because of the rapid speed of change, that, you know, 
we were seeing it more than other places. But when I went to Virginia, I realized that's simply not true. I mean, in Virginia, they're dealing already um, along the shoreline with sunny day flooding due to sea level rise. Um, the military base in Norfolk, Virginia, you know, they're actively trying to figure out how to manage um, the, the issues that they're having there with flooding because it's a problem of our, you know, national infrastructure and security. Um, and, you know, they're seeing different species, they're seeing different vector-borne diseases. So the fact that, you know, climate change is affecting some parts of the world more than others, you know, is true. But my experience in spending time in both places is that, you know, climate change is affecting all of us here and now. Um, and it's just in, you know, it's just affected by the places that we live in different ways. So uh, I lived in Arlington, Virginia, and, you know, Fairfax is like, you know, 20 minutes away if there's no traffic. Um, why isn't the Pentagon uh, making this a military issue? Like climate change obviously is a military issue. And if they're spending $500 on toilet seats over there, and that's not really what they're spending $500 on, why can't America, Republican and Democrat, just get behind the fact that this is a national security issue. Yeah, well, I'm not an expert on exactly how much the military is spending on addressing climate change, so I can't comment on that specifically, but I do know that this is an issue that the military is concerned about, you know, both in terms of the infrastructure that we have um, in the United States and, you know, the threats to that infrastructure. Climate change is also, um, as Catherine Hayhoe likes to say, you know, a threat amplifier. And so places where there's already some kind of, you know, instability, social instability, you know, that could be um, um, compounded by a situation where climate change causes a drought or, you know, where there are these, you know, additional layers of challenges that are created due to climate change that, you know, create concerns for national security. Um, but I would also say that, you know, in some ways the military is um, getting out ahead of the problem um, and trying to do what they can to solve it. So um, I think it's the military base, one of the military bases in Texas um, is powered largely by wind power. Um, because it makes um, it makes good sense to not rely on fossil fuels if you want to have a secure military base. Um, the Eielson Air Force Base here in Alaska is looking into micronuclear technology to power their base. And so, um, you know, I think the military gets gets part of the problem here that we're facing with climate change. You know, they understand the threats, they understand the solutions. Um, but it's a matter of, you know, who's telling that story, because it could be a pretty influential story. Um, but I'm not sure that it's, you know, it's being told as much as it could um, to the audiences that would be interested in hearing about that. Certainly. So uh, switching gears to Glacier Melt, uh, your most cited uh, peer-reviewed article on Google Scholar is about the Pacific Coast temperate rainforest and how the massive uh, glacier, I don't know if it's the Mendenhall one, but uh, how that just changes the chemistry of the water um, and the ice field to the ocean ecosystem. So 
uh, kind of speak to that. The, the melting of the glaciers isn't just bad for uh, photographs uh, when you're on a cruise ship in Juneau. It also affects uh, the, the entire ecosystem of everything that lives there, plants, animals, flora, fauna, everything. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, we think about glaciers as being just these, you know, areas of ice just sitting there, but they actually contribute a lot to the whole ecosystem um, surrounding them. Um, and, you know, this project was a really interesting project. Um, I worked with, um, as you probably have seen, there's a whole huge list of authors, and I worked with this team of scientists that included glaciologists and biologists and um, resource management professionals. So it was this huge interdisciplinary team. And I was working with this team to try to help them find the story and tell the story about what was happening um, with glaciers in Southeast Alaska. And so one of the ways that I helped, um, helped this team find the story was by using my graphic design skills to create a basically like a blank slate of the southeast Alaska coastline. And over the course of a two day workshop, all of these different experts were drawing, you know, what part of the system they were studying and, you know, sketching arrows to try to explain this is connected to this and this is connected to this. And after the two day workshop, we had this beautiful um, or the start of this beautiful synthesis um, that presented, you know, what key um, parts of this ecosystem are changing and what it means for the whole rest of the, the coastal ecosystem. And so um, that was a really fun um, interdisciplinary work that I, I got to do. Um, and I love glaciers and glacier landscapes. That's what first brought me to Alaska. Um, and so it was really fun to be involved in that project um, as the communication expert. And uh, just from your experience, this uh, climate change and global warming issue, uh, it, it's a, it really is interdisciplinary, but for all humans. I mean, no matter who you are or what profession you're in, uh, this affects you because we're all on planet Earth. Have you noticed like, uh, in, in just your research of the news media, uh, that these stories are getting into the business section and the sports section and, and uh, the uh, other sections of the paper more than they were in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the big transformations that's happened in climate change um, news reporting over the last couple decades. You know, when it first started to come on the public agenda, it was usually a science story. Um, and you know where the science stories live in the newspaper, they're on the back, you know, cause it's more of like a curiosity kind of thing um, rather than a breaking news kind of thing. And then um, as the issue evolved, it became, you know, more of an environmental issue then it became more of a political issue. And now I think we are starting to see the um, the climate change story told in a lot of different ways. So you brought up sports and I was like, hmm, I actually don't think I've seen an example from a sports page. But one thing that I, I have seen that I thought was really interesting in my dissertation work, I was looking at how the um, fourth national climate assessment report that was released in 2018 
how that was covered in the news. And one interesting thing I found was that throughout the Midwest, um, climate change was really like framed, like the thing that they emphasized was the impacts to agriculture. And so, you know, that takes science um, or that takes climate change out of that little science niche box and puts it right into context with the things that matter a lot to people in that particular region of the United States. And so seeing those kinds of um, trends, I think, is really important because then you connect with people who are, you know, reading the agriculture section of the paper or, you know, staying on top of news about agriculture and the big trends and developments. And then, I mean, anyone that studies this issue, uh, you know, for years and years, it, it really comes down to the Industrial Revolution um, and uh, coal and oil. And then us as a human society, we need to switch to renewables. Do you see those stories in the business section of uh, the green economy becoming, uh, you, you know, basically taking the carbon out of the atmosphere so we can uh, continue to live on the planet? Yeah, so um, I haven't specifically done a lot of research related to how solutions are reported in the news, so I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, one thing that has been studied before and that we we know from psychological research that if you're presenting people with like a risk or, you know, a, a, an issue that is troubling, um, it's important to give people solution information at the same time. And one thing we know is that largely climate change related news has focused on, you know, the impacts um, and solutions are reported on much less frequently. Um, I'm not sure if that's starting to change. Hopefully it is. Um, but there's a whole bunch of different kind of media theories and media related research out there, you know, and one of the things that we know from kind of the media theories is that there is a slight negativity bias in the news, you know, it's, it's the bad news that makes the news that people want to like click on and find out more. And so for a long time, it's been difficult for journalists to um, to pitch solution stories because they're just, you know, it's harder to make them, um, it's harder to align those with, you know, what news values. Um, but I think that's starting to change. And then uh, just looking while we're still talking about the media, um, looking at the issue of like uh, enviro justice and, uh, kind of relating that to the inside the newsroom, uh, you have done some research on uh, whether uh, the begin. I mean, I, I, it's, I don't know how to phrase the question. Maybe like, is the systemic institution of the newsroom racist or is there uh, more minorities uh, reporting on this than weren't in the past? I mean, it's a, uh, it, it's not just a white male cisgender giving the the reports on this. So can you speak a little bit about uh, your research in um, uh, racism and environmental justice? 
Oh, yeah. So, um, so that particular research, um, when, um, when my research uh, group that I was working with, when we started this project with um, journalists, we partnered with the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and the National Association of Black Journalists, because they were also very interested in how their members were um, addressing this climate change issue. So we know that um, you know, around the country, um, that racism is a contributing factor to climate vulnerability. Um, and structural racism affects, you know, who has resources to do the things that they want to do in their community. It affects, you know, who's already been um, exposed potentially to environmental contaminants or, you know, has issues related to environmental health. So, you know, again, going back to that um, idea of a threat amplifier. Um, if we are already dealing with issues related to structural racism in the United States, and then we add climate change on top of that, without trying to address, you know, the underlying inequities, then, um, you know, some people are going to be hurt, or some people have been hurt um, at a much dispor a disproportionately much greater level. So, um, so we wanted to to know whether you know journalists in these professional societies um, we wanted to know whether climate change was an issue that they were reporting on that their you know readers and viewers were interested in um, and so yeah nobody had really um, done any research to date about what you know journalists of a particular um, racial identity what what or how they were thinking about reporting on this topic and so that's what that research addresses and it, I mean, like you uh, alluded to earlier in the show, it's hard enough to get the editor to let you run the story on climate change. And this is just another added hurdle that was built in from the system to begin with. Um, it, it is not easy to get the climate change story out there, is it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and one of the um, the challenges that had been mentioned in the the academic literature related to um, racial identity in journalism is that often journalists of color are sort of constrained to covering issues, you know, from that particular racial identity perspective. And so, you know, it's just sort of um, assumed that like, white is the norm and you know our black journalist is going to cover black stories but what we looked at in that particular research was just you know if you were to um um uh, how do i want to phrase this exactly like if the newsrooms were basically you know treating all of their reporters the same when it came to stories, you know, and, and enabling everybody to report about climate change if they wanted to, you know, how could reporting potentially look different? Certainly. So a couple more questions and then doctor, uh, I'll, I'll let you go. Um, I did see you contributed um, a, to some graphic art design and some really cool stuff in regards to the Northern Sea Route the Northwest Passage, the Arctic Bridge. Um, how uh, how bad off is the polar bear? If all of this, if all the if the sea ice melts like it's supposed to uh, in the summer by 2050, 
the the polar bear is either going to need to learn how to tread water or um, go back to being a grizzly bear and, and go south for uh, for the foreseeable future. So knowing what you know, is the polar bear doomed? Is it uh, on the way uh, to the dodo bird? <laughs> Unfortunately, I. Um... You know, I appreciate polar bears, but I know very little about them and their biology. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm afraid I can't answer that question. Um, yeah, I could talk right. about well, how uh, they uh, were framed in the media. <laughs> well, then we won't get into the mammophants. Um, <laughs> we'll leave the mammophants in Siberia alone. But uh, just to wrap this up, um, truly, it seems like uh, there is an interdisciplinary um, aspect to all of this, and even with the nature of environmental communications, uh, it, it, everyone needs to be part of this, no matter where you're from or who you are, or what you look like. This is a global problem. And the, the biggest issue is just getting that to be known. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one, um, a uh, researcher who has really shaped the way I think about science communication and climate change communication is this researcher named Baruch Fischoff. And he claimed that science communication is a team sport and that if we're designing um, communication about science, about climate change, about, you know, any kind of like technical risk, um, that basically our teams should include um, content experts in whatever area you're communicating about. So maybe it's sea ice um, or maybe it's polar bears or maybe it's nuclear energy. So it contains content experts. It includes social and decision scientists who understand how people make decisions about risks, how people think and feel and behave. And it also includes communication practitioners. So that's um, kind of the job I filled in my past life, you know, was basically trying to synthesize science so that it was more understandable for a lot of different audiences and, you know, finding the right channels to get that information out to them. So those three people or those three types of people were who he argued should be essential members of a team. Um, and, you know, I add to that framework. Um, either community members or, you know, people who can help you kind of co-create um, that information so that it really addresses the questions that are of interest to that audience. And so at that point, you're beyond uh, an interdisciplinary team. You're actually into a transdisciplinary team where we're considering not just scientific knowledge, we're considering professional expertise, we're, in, we're considering, you know, lived experience, all on the same equal footing. Um, and I think that's what's really important when we think about climate change communication going forward, is that, um, you know, we need a lot more expertise to do uh, climate communication and science communication well than what we have in the past. Um, and it's going to take those transdisciplinary teams to um, to really, you know, bring our our communication work up to the next level. Absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Kristen Tim, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you've been listening to KSUA 91.5 FM. Uh, join the conversation here in College, Alaska. Uh, broadcasting from our campus here at UAF in Fairbanks. 
And uh, Dr. Tim, thank you very much for being on the show. And I will see you soon. Yep. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a good afternoon. You too. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA, our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.